Hey everyone, I'm Karina. And I'm Emily. And this is The Nameless Dead. Today we're going to talk about a series of murders that struck a small town in northern Germany almost a hundred years ago. Now this case happened so long ago that many documents have been lost. What we have remaining are a few police records and the personal records of a citizen of the town and central player in this case named Francis. Now, Francis's records are a bit untrustworthy, but we'll get more into that later. Everything that happens in this case surrounds a traveling carnival. It was a spring day in Hostenwald, Germany in 1920 when the carnival came to town. Hostenwald was and still is known as a city for carnivals and fairs, but in 1920, it probably doesn't look the way you would imagine a city famous for partying looks. Hostenwald was filled with post-war crumbling infrastructure. It was dark and had a ton of problems bubbling under the surface. Yet the city insisted on maintaining the facade of being the same happy, carefree town it was before the war. It was a day like any other day for Hostenwald's town clerk. Now, when we say we don't have much information about this case, this is especially obvious with the town clerk. This man is the nameless dead in this case. What we know about him was his occupation, that he was a longtime respected citizen of Hostenval, and that he lived alone. This day for the town clerk was exceptionally busy at work. You see, every vendor from the carnival, that being anyone who took money, had to apply for a permit. That means anyone running an attraction, a game, food vendors, etc. So the office was complete chaos. We have a couple of townspeople reporting that the town clerk was in a bad mood that day, but you can certainly understand why. There were outsiders coming in nonstop. They didn't know procedures. Everyone had paperwork to fill out. I'm sure it must have been frustrating and crazy. At the end of the day, he left the office. What he didn't know was that would be the last day he ever walked out that door. That night saw the first of a series of mysterious crimes. One of the clerk's neighbors was awoken from a deep sleep by a scream. In a small town in 1920, this was an unusual occurrence, so the neighbor quickly summoned police to investigate. For Hostenval police, being woken up in the middle of the night was a bit unusual, but walking into the gruesome scene that they would find at the town clerk's house, well, that was something new. The town clerk had been brutally stabbed to death in his sleep. The only piece of evidence? His broken bedroom window. The cause of death was obvious, so no autopsy was performed. Investigators were only able to determine that the murderer had entered through his bedroom window. Historians and murder junkies alike know that 1920s Germany was filled with serial killers. There was economic and political chaos of the period made it easy for killers to find victims whose disappearance would not be quickly noticed. That, along with shoddy investigation at the time, made for a country-wide rash of murders of all sorts. Many people believe that this first murder was a test case for the ones to come. The next day, the entire town is excited to attend the carnival, including Alan and his best friend Francis. These two young men had grown up together. They had just returned from fighting in World War I. They were so similar, they were even in love with the same woman. Unfortunately, the only attraction they ended up going to was Dr. Caligari's Somnambulist show. 
Now, you may know somnambulism by its legal usage, automatism, or its more common usage, sleepwalking. At the time, somnambulism was a combination of sleepwalking and hypnotism, where a hidden puppet master pulled the strings of the victimized sleeper. Somnambulism was all the mystical rage in Germany at this time. Sigmund Freud's book extensively about sleepwalking and a metaphysical supplement to the theory of dreams had just been published a few years before these incidents took place. And the somnambulist they were about to see, Cesare, was no common sleepwalker. According to his barker and hypnotist, Dr. Caligari, he had slept for 25 years and he could tell the future. Once the two boys witness Cesare come to life, Alan runs to the front of the crowd and asks a very strange question. Alan asks Cesare, when will I die? Why would you ever ask a fortune teller that? I don't know. And I would highly suggest that anyone who comes in contact with a fortune teller doesn't start a conversation like this. Cesare responds as any sideshow future-telling sleepwalker would at first dawn. Now, most people would have laughed this off, but Alan left the carnival distraught. As Francis, Alan, and Jane, the woman both men were in love with, left the carnival, the friends have no way of knowing that this would be the last night they would ever see Alan alive. That night, Alan, like the town clerk before him, was stabbed to death in his bed. Once again, the cause of death and entry point, Alan's broken window, were obvious, and there was a sad lack of recorded clues. No autopsy was performed, although Alan did have defensive wounds on his hands and wrists, implying that he may have been awake or had woken up while the stabbing occurred. When Francis hears about the murder, he remembers Cesare's prophecy from the day before and immediately runs to tell police that Dr. Caligari should be on their suspect list. Unfortunately, police don't take him seriously. Apparently, he acted very strangely and erratic while he was delivering this news, which was probably because he was in a state of shock from just hearing that his lifelong best friend had been stabbed to death. Police recorded that he had been incomprehensible and breathless. Eventually, after Francis decided to get support of a more respected member of the town, Jane's father, Dr. Olson, police issued them both a police warrant to search Dr. Caligari's trailer. This same day, in the same town, a shady character sneaks into the back door of a downtown apartment building. It wasn't long before a woman in one of the upper story apartments began screaming out her window that the murderer was in her house. A group of citizens was able to apprehend this knife-wielding man and bring him to police custody. Now, a couple things we know about serial killers is they choose patterns and follow them over and over again. This suspect that had just been apprehended did use a knife as the murder weapon. However, he attacked this woman in the evening rather than in the dead of night like we'd seen in the past two cases. He also used a door as opposed to a window, which had been consistent, and he attacked a woman as opposed to a man. Police later decide that while this man was guilty of attempted murder of his accuser, he was not responsible for the other two murders, partially because of what happens later on that night. After Francis and Dr. Olson leave the police station, they go immediately to Dr. Caligari's trailer. After a few slight protests and the threat of police action, Dr. Caligari lets them in. Everything appears to be normal, 
at least as normal as this sideshow trailer could be. Cesare is asleep in his cabinet. Now when I say cabinet, it was actually more like a coffin. Both of Cesare's shoulders touched either side of the cabinet and there was a bit of headspace. The cabinet was either laying down or positioned upright, depending on the situation. And I don't know if this was just to maintain the stage spectacle at all times, but there are some reports of Dr. Caligari spoon-feeding the unconscious Cesare. Francis is not so convinced that everything is normal, and he decides to stay and spy on Dr. Caligari and Cesare throughout the night. He's convinced that this will prevent another murder. Late that night, Jane's family is awoken by Jane's screams. They rush to her room to find a tall, thin figure making his escape out the bedroom window with Jane as his captive. Jane's family actually gives chase, and they have the upper hand as they know the city well. Eventually, the kidnapper grows tired of running and carrying the body weight of an unconscious woman over his shoulder. He drops Jane's unconscious body. As family and police rush to see if Jane is alive, they look up in time to see the shadow of her assailant as he throws himself off of a nearby bridge into the water below. When Jane awakes, she is able to name her captor, Cesare. Police immediately raid Cesare and Dr. Caligari's trailer. This surprises Francis, who has been watching the trailer all night and saw nothing suspicious. Police find, in Cesare's cabinet, a stuffed dummy of Cesare. It must have been a pretty convincing dummy in order for them to have not known that he wasn't there in the first place. Yeah, well, I, I would imagine this had something to do with the stage trick that they played. I'm not sure how it all worked, but having a dummy that looked exactly like him, a very lifelike one, would make sense. It would. It would. Once police leave, having not found Cesare, Dr. Caligari exits the trailer moments after them, and Francis decides to follow him. Now this is where the story gets a little crazy. Dr. Caligari leads Francis right to the local insane asylum. Of course, this explains everything, Francis thinks, assuming the man who has been murdering people is an asylum patient. Upon questioning the doctors, he finds out that Dr. Caligari is actually the asylum's director. What? I know. Police are still looking for Cesare, who they believe Dr. Caligari might be hiding. Francis informs them of Dr. Caligari's position in the asylum, and police raid his office. They don't find Cesare, but they do find a manuscript from 1093 about a traveling monk in northern Italy named Caligari and a somnambulist Cesare and the series of murders they committed. 1093, like 900 years before this happened? Yep. Wow. We don't know if the manuscript is legit or if it's a fake or if it somehow inspired Dr. Caligari or Cesare or if it was more of a a hundred-year-old fan fiction. Could be. Or maybe they're just that old. Yeah, maybe, maybe they're eternal beings. Maybe. Not too long after that, Cesare's drowned body is found in the river that onlookers saw him jump into. Police bring in Dr. Caligari to identify the body. Dr. Caligari is so overcome by seeing his friend's body, he starts attacking the people around him and has to be physically restrained. Some sources say he was institutionalized in his very own asylum. 
Once Cesare's body is found, the police consider the case closed. The villain was witnessed kidnapping the town maiden. The killing started the day he had arrived in town, and that's all they really needed. Francis still suspected Dr. Caligari was behind all of it, and keep in mind, Francis's writings are where we get much of our information on this case. What we do know for a fact is he did not deal well with losing his best friend. He started spreading it around the town that he and Jane were engaged. They weren't. One afternoon, in a very public pronouncement, he proposed to Jane in the middle of the town square, who rejected him. At this moment, the pressure at all proved to be too much. His post-war PTSD, losing Alan, and now the public rejection from the only woman he would ever love. Francis falls into a state of mania and begins shouting, You fools! This man is plotting our doom! We die at dawn! He is Caligari! Francis is restrained and institutionalized at Dr. Caligari's insane asylum, where he remains for the rest of his life. So, who really killed Alan and the, and the clerk? Can we know? We have no way of really knowing right now. There are a lot of theories out there. It could have been Francis who had wanted to marry Jane instead of his best friend. Um, it could have been the suspect that they arrested for attempted murder, and he could have been lying about all of the other murders. Um, and we honestly don't even know if Dr. Caligari had anything to do with it or if those were just the rantings of an insane man. Certainly is a possible theory that Francis, having been so upset when he showed up at the police station, maybe he did kill his best friend out of jealousy and PTSD. Yeah, and a lot of people think that. Unfortunately, police records were sparse when it came to really any sort of emotion. And then Jane did recognize Cesare as her captor, so that, that does implicate him. It does. And some people think that the reason he kidnapped Jane instead of murdering her on the spot was he wanted to commit sexual assault in a secondary location. That's possible, right, because he did stab the others in their beds. But Jane is also a somewhat different profile than who we had seen murdered previously. Hmm. Mainly that she's a woman rather than a man. Um, ages varied between the town clerk who was older and Alan who was a young man. Right. And then what motive would, if it is Cesare, why would he kill the town clerk who was issued Dr. Caligari a permit to work this festival? And why would he kill this random passerby at, at his, who visited his stand? So some people theorize that if you go with the theory that Dr. Caligari was somehow controlling Cesare, people say that the town clerk was rude to to Dr. Caligari, just like he had been rude to everybody mm. that day. So that might have inspired him to <laughs> convince Cesare or force Cesare to kill him. Um, or, you know, another theory is that it was a test case to see how people would react to murders in this small town. Right. Right. But it also leads to the question of why murder Alan as well. Was I guess it just because he asked the question of when will I die? Once the prediction's been made, he had to make it come true. There is that. <laughs> we've, all, we've all had our hand forced in murder in the past. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. 
So what I wonder is, if Dr. Caligari ran a nearby insane asylum, how would no one recognize him? Well, there is, there was a bit of a stigma around the insane asylum around then. So it's possible that people intentionally didn't pay attention mm. to anything having to do with the insane asylum. That would make but, sense. But it's also a really good question. Wouldn't he be living nearby, buying his food nearby? Wouldn't he most likely have grown up there as well? And how well can he balance being a traveling sideshow host with running an insane asylum? Or was he a traveling sideshow host? Mm. Was was this just some sort of experiment that he wanted to do within the nearest town? That's a good theory. And and we don't know how much he disguised himself either. Mm-hmm. Did he disguise himself? If he was pretending to be someone else, it would be the logical choice. It would. Yeah, some people believe that he had the manuscript, Dr. Caligari had the manuscript, and had read about this Dr. Caligari and his somnambulist and waited for the right patient to show up to find out if mm. a person could actually be influenced to perform certain acts that would have been otherwise out of character. So did he just take a, um, an unsuspecting patient and hypnotize him to perform murder? Wow, that's a really scary thought. I wonder at the authenticity of those writings from the 11th century. Do, do they still exist? Well, we know the police didn't keep them as evidence, so it's likely that they were lost Um, Mm. Keep in mind, this was right before World War II, and many, many, many things in Germany, especially documents, were destroyed both during the war and in the aftermath. Right. The only way we even know these writings existed were because of police records specifically stating that that's what they found during the search. Hmm. But they could have been legitimate, or they could have been phonies created by... Cesar or and or Dr. Caligari. That's possible. I'm not sure they explain anything about the murders, or perhaps they explain everything about the murders. <laughs> we may never know the answer to some of these questions. At this point, it's likely that anyone who knows anything about this case has passed away. But we do know that people write down their secrets. So we need any listeners with relatives in Germany at that time to do some family research, read your grandparents' journals, ask questions of your aunts and uncles, dig down a little bit. Don't give up hope. Maybe together we could finally close the case of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. This episode was written and hosted by Karina McGeehan with co-hosting by Emily Shirley. Our editor and producer is Derek Adams, and sound and music design was done by Ian Ennis.